So coming out of the of the war, there was just this you know excitement about this enormous consumer market, mass consumer market, which had been delayed in its gratification through the the Great Depression and then through the war years. Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism, a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. My name is Chris Hong. I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago Department of History, and I'm an intern at the Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. We're talking today with Elizabeth Cohen, professor of American Studies and History at Harvard University. She's a two-time winner of the Bancroft Prize in American History and the author most recently of Saving America's Cities, Ed Logue and the Struggle to Renew Urban America During a Suburban Age. Today, we'll be talking with her about her earlier book, A Consumer's Republic, Politics of Mass Consumption in Postwar America. Liz, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's kind of nice to think back to a book I wrote 17 years ago. <laughs> and, and more relevant than ever, I'd say. Um, yeah. So I wanted to ask to get started. So in A Consumer's Republic, you argue, one of your main arguments is that in this era of post-war America, the act of private consumption was closely tied to being a good member of society, maybe more so than than in previous or, or um, later times. Uh, and in particular, you talk about two con conceptions of consumers that predominated, one of which you call the citizen consumer and the other is the purchaser consumer. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us what each of these conveyed and how they each contributed to making consumption a political act or a social duty. Okay, well, I think we have to first go back to the 1930s and the Great Depression when thinking kind of turned to what the consumer could mean as this economy was in shambles and uh, the federal government was being kind of empowered to play a bigger role in the economy and society. And for many people um, on the progressive side, uh, to talking about a role for the consumers in many of the New Deal agencies, in uh, the, the kind of legislation that might be passed, um, meant taking into account the common good, the ordinary people. And there were many people unemployed. So this was not just thinking about people in their role as workers, but people just in their normal lives were often um, consumers. And so the idea of the citizen consumer was a way of thinking about ordinary citizens and making sure that uh, they were protected as much as possible and that they had a voice in this kind of new deal uh, environment that was being developed. So that was one notion that was pretty much a, a progressive one. At the same time, uh, there were many people who were in uh, business and in labor and in government in particular, who were thinking of something that, that I label the purchaser consumer. And here, and this certainly takes off by the late 1930s, this is related to the embrace of Keynesianism. The idea that if we um, build our new economy uh, coming out of the depression on demand and government plays a role in increasing that demand, we will create a society that of, of greater purchasing power that will ultimately be more equitable, more democratic and so forth. And so, coming out of the 30s, you had these two notions of, of, of an empowered citizen and a, uh, you know, a kind of um, better equipped consumer for a more prosperous economy. The war uh, comes along in the first part of the 1940s. And in some ways, because consumption is certainly being suppressed in the wartime, the citizen consumer takes on a kind of new life and becomes 
extremely important because there's a lot of regulation of the consumer marketplace during the war. Um, and, and a way of thinking about how to be a good patriotic citizen is to be a responsible consumer. So that's the, the war experience. And then when we come out of the war, I argue that this, what I can, I label a consumer's republic, they didn't talk about it in those terms. They talked about it though, um, in, a, in a very uh, regular predictable way that I have just for shorthand called the consumer's republic. There was a kind of merger of these two concepts of that are an, an economic solution is to have high consumption. Uh, we'll have a more prosperous America that will benefit everybody. And that consumption is also um, you know, good for the common good and good for citizens. And so what emerges, I argue, is something, a third label, if you will, that I have come up with called the purchaser as citizen. And the idea here is that there really isn't a conflict between what's good for the consumer and what's good for the society as a whole. But really as individuals consume, the society will benefit because we'll create a more prosperous America through a robust mass consumption economy that will deliver not just, you know, good paychecks and good night, decent places to live, but also more equality, more freedom, and uh, more democracy. So it was a very loaded concept that, you know, this prosperous post-war America would deliver on many fronts. There's quite a few. Yeah, one, one thing I was wondering, yeah, is, is this idea, especially, I guess, as the purchaser citizen, does that come with sort of a, like, political power or the ability to, to make demands on the state? Or was that sort of something that was uh, receded from after, after the war? Well, um, I think it's complicated. People had somewhat different relationships to it, though I, I would say that Democrats and Republicans were both very much, very much bought into this. Uh, so that, but you, under a democratic regime, you probably had a little more comfort with um, a larger role for, for the federal government. But one of my arguments is that despite all these promises <laughs> that, there, that were out there, many of the steps that were taken to deliver the Consumers Republic ultimately undermined many of those larger social goals. So for example, if you take housing, which is, I think, a very good example of the, I, the concept that, um, okay, well, we're going to, the, the Housing Act of 1949 promised a decent living environment for every American, but the strategy that people who were very much imbued with this Consumers Republic notion embraced was, okay, uh, we have a housing crisis coming out of 10 years of a Great Depression and then the war, a terrible housing crisis, but we're, we're going to solve it with creating a more active private real estate markets through suburbanization. And the answer to uh, the housing crisis is going to be that as many Americans as possible will, will own their own home and the government will invest in mortgages to help make that possible through the GI Bill, through the Federal Housing Authority Administration, highway building that opened up huge territories outside of cities for suburban growth. Um, so this, this concept of the way in which people can live better in the consumer's republic is through owning their own homes, ultimately led to a very fragmented metropolitan society where people lived in communities that really were pegged at very different socioeconomic levels and therefore gained benefits that varied tremendously. Well-off communities paid high taxes and had excellent schools. Poor communities did, could not afford the, that quality of education and of, of public services. So that uh, the, 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 these are kind of perhaps unintended consequences. <laughs> that would be perhaps maybe a generous reading. But the result of this investment and the confidence that a, priv a robust private market could deliver all these great social goods uh, was ultimately more greater inequality, I argue. So there were like pretty severe social cultural limits to this kind of macroeconomic management of a consumer's republic. 
So, uh, yeah. would, a, would, would a more democratic alternative have been something like the OPA? That continuing the kind of regulation you're suggesting that took place during the war. So we should talk, if we want to talk about the OPA, that the Office of Price Administration, which was an effort on the part of the Democrats in Washington and uh, FDR's administration and then Truman, to, to, to make sure that, um, first of all, that the military was supplied with what it needed, which meant that we had to restrict consumption uh, on the home front. And so there was rationing of products like rubber and sugar, uh, cars, um, nylon, many of the things that were going to be need, needed for the material of war. So that was very strictly enforced. Um, and there were rationing, there was ration coupons, uh, there was price stabilization, which meant that uh, prices could not rise above a certain amount. There was rent stabilization. This was a, a, a government hand on the economy that we had hardly seen before. But when the war ended, it was all up for grabs again. And uh, many people on the progressive side wanted the OPA, as you're suggesting, to, to continue, certainly until the economy had stabilized more. There were great shortages of meat, for example, right after the war and prices, there was tremendous inflation and prices of some foodstuffs was going through the roof. So there were progressives calling for the OPA to remain and to keep that hand on the economy and, and try to keep some greater equality and equity. But there were many others who felt, no, we have been in this restricted environment long enough. We need to let the market sort of take off. We're gonna restrict growth if we don't do that. Um, so there was a huge battle in Congress. Uh, Truman favored keeping the OPA. Ultimately, it was, it was gone. Mm -hmm. um, so your question is, would, you know, a, a politic, it's, I don't really think it probably would have been politically feasible to keep that kind of regulation going. Um, given that the one of the basic concepts of the Consumers Republic was that not to have a redistribute, redistributive state uh, and economy, but to actually invest in expanding the pie. The, the, the solution was always going to be growth. And so people would have argued that you were going to you know, restrict that growth if you keep such a strong regulatory hand on the economy. And there was confidence that, you know, if we, that the, we, there was this great potential um, and that we could deliver a greater share to everybody if we let that pie grow. But there were also many social obstacles to giving people an equal share of that pie. And if you just take race, for example, and go back to my housing example, when the government did make money and resources available for the purchase of private housing as the solution to our enormous housing shortage, it restricted access to people who were uh, African-American by redlining uh, neighborhoods where they lived and where they, and not giving them the access to those resources. And one of the ways that <clears throat> these government programs did that <clears throat> is that the government itself did not actually implement a program like the VA mortgages, the veterans uh, mortgages, or many of the FHA loans. It, they, they were, uh, the money was channeled through private banks. So people had to be qualified by these local banks who took on the same maps from the 1930s that had redlined um, minority neighborhoods and applied them to the granting of mortgages. So despite this kind of um, philosophy and, and, and assumption that everybody would benefit in the consumer's republic, in reality, there were lots of discriminations built into it. I guess this kind of brings me to the question, and, and you mentioned in an answer earlier that uh, calling it the consumer's republic is kind of your own uh, term of art. Um, and the, 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 the word republic obviously is has a loaded history uh, in terms of uh, political thought. And I, I think you use it, it sort of takes on an, an 
ambivalent sort of shade in the book. On the one hand, consumption as a site is obvious is obviously a site of, of both civic and political mobilization, and sort of a site where you know class class and civil struggle takes place. Um, but on the other hand, in your chapter on uh, post-war suburbanization, you mention how, especially in in these New Jersey suburbs, a real sort of ideology of localism and self-rule kind of takes root um, in these kind of low-tax jurisdictions um, that sort of suck up resources and provide public services really to the detriment of, of, of the older kind of urban areas like Newark. And you, you call those areas, I guess, also kind of little republics. So I was wondering if, um, if you could reflect on maybe the term of republic, what it means in terms of economic and political citizenship in, in the period that you discuss. Yeah, I, um, I, in an introduction to the book, I explain uh, why I was attracted to using the language of republic. It was extremely common in the Cold War era to think of the United States as a republic. So it, it, it kind of, it seemed to ring true for me. But you're right. Uh, in that it's, uh, it doesn't mean, it, and one of the reasons why I think the word worked for me was it didn't imply necessarily a very strong federal government. It, that was not necessarily within people's assumptions. It's an idea that, you know, that you have some kind of self-governance um, and we elect representatives uh, to enact what we want um, but it doesn't specify the level at which that's going to happen. Um, and I think it does operate on many levels. And I, you're right that I was suggesting that there is a kind of fragmentation of metropolitan areas that happens with this massive suburbanization that takes place in the, the post-war period. Um, and that people become very attached to the locality uh, and that contributes greatly to the inequity, as I suggested, um, uh, in a metropolitan area where cities may be left with uh, the predominance of low-income residents, um, but don't have the resources of many of the wealthiest people in that metropolitan area who may work and benefit on a daily basis from the business of the city, but who then go back to their little republics in the suburbs and through their taxes are not contributing to that larger city. Um, so that I think that, you know, re Republic was signifying that people had control over their political environment um, and that that could operate on multiple levels. Yeah, the theme of, I guess, segmentation or fracturing really comes in, especially for sort of for the second half of the period, maybe that you're describing, um, you, you know, you talk a lot about the, the, I guess, spatial fragmenting of these metropolises, but also the rise of market segmentation and sort of the, you know, the fracturing of the consumer market from one like large, uh, undifferentiated mass to these very specific, um, you know, product segments. Um, how did that happen? And what were some of the consequences for the I think that that's very important to bring into this because this is this fragmentation, segmentation that has very much shaped the world we live in today um, was happening on multiple levels. So physically, we were just talking about how the places people live become very fragmented uh, in terms of governance. Um, but on a sort of social and cultural level, it's happening as well. So coming out of the war and with the embrace of this consumer's republic and the uh, very broadly shared assumption that you know we can be prosperous through uh, ramping up mass consumption and we can deal with factories that had been um, equipped to, to make uh, material for war, whether it was planes or, um, you know, cannons or whatever they were making uh, armaments. Um, we, we will we will transition those factories into consumer goods, into appliances. And already during the during the war years, there were lots of advertisements that promised, you know, just wait till the war's over and you're going to have your house with your 
refrigerator and your washing machine and your, you know, and, and, and your car. Um, so there was just, a, a, you know, a many ways in which people thought about what it meant to be uh, through the war was in terms of, you know, a life of con with consumer, with more consumer goods. Um, so coming out of the, of the war, there was just this, you know, excitement about this enormous consumer market, mass consumer market, which had been, um, you know, delayed in its gratification through the, the Great Depression and then through the war years. And, you know, what an appetite, lots of new families being formed. People had delayed marriages. They had delayed child rearing. Now they were, buy, you know, moving into these suburbs and they were needing to buy cars and whatever. So there was this, just at first, this assumption that, you know, this mass consumer market is limitless. Um, you know, we, we, they have such an appetite, we can just, everything we can think of, we can produce for it. But as time went on, there was a kind of realization that there might be a saturation of this market um, and that there was a limit to what had, was kind of the prevailing strategy, which was a planned obsolescence that, you know, okay, well, we'll, we'll build a car, but it'll only work for three or four years or we'll change the fashion so much that people will be will go back and buy uh, need to buy something else. And so those were the operating principles, but it wasn't working out quite as manufacturers and marketers uh, thought it would. And they realized that they really needed to figure out ways of reaching consumers better where they were. Um, and not assuming that everybody would be attracted to the same product, um, that there would be, it could create more markets if they could really peg them better to uh, the, the tastes of particular social groups, whether those were defined by age, by social class, by race, by gender, by geography. So what started to take off in the late 1950s and really flourished in the 1960s and thereafter, and it's still very much going on today, um, was a developing of a, almost a science of market segmentation, where you figure out based on somebody's social uh, and political profile, what consumer goods they are most likely to be attracted to. And then you, you really, uh, market those goods to them. And then I also show that there were many other aspects of American society as it developed in the post-war period that reinforced that segmentation. One, for example, that we're very familiar with today is television. It started off with just networks, um, you know, basically three, NBC, CBS, and ABC. Um, you know, over time, then we got cable, and then now, you know, you can't even count how many uh, options there are. And what that did was move people from kind of the shared experience of one evening news to multiple ones. Um, and, and again, in that world of uh, political culture or social life, there was a kind of fracturing that went on. And then one of the most important moves I make in the book, I think, is to show how that philosophy of market segmentation moves into the political arena. And it gets taken up very explicitly. Uh, first, the first effort being in uh, the first in, in Eisenhower's presidential campaign, there are some people who work in advertising who start working for him and then they make some, some TV ads but it really takes off in the 1960s um, and becomes extremely precise and well-developed so that uh, you know, political campaigns will give a message to uh, a constituent that they decide will really speak to the interests of that person and that, and that you know, community. So rather than this, Again, I don't want to romanticize the extent to which all Americans lived in the same, yeah. you know, world before this market segmentation, because there certainly were political differences. But it fragments it further, um, and it also moves politics. And this is where the book sort of ends to um, um, a, a, almost like the consumer marketplace, where 
rather than thinking about, well, what is best for a mass American society? People are asking, what's best for me? Um, and their, their political menu is very much reflection of how they define their own needs. And I call that the consumerization of the Republic, where people are applying the template of the marketplace to the political arena and saying, am I getting my money's worth? Yeah, so it, this kind of reveals the way that the consumer's republic was always a contradictory formation. The idea that consumers could be Republicans reverses itself and Republicans become consumers. Meaning, you mean Republicans, small r, big r? Small r, uh, in, the, in the sense of like a serving the common good. Or something right, like right. Right, um, and and this is the the sort of the shift from one to the other is reflective of the shift from mass marketing to segmented marketing. Yeah, I mean, but that I do think it actually is the motor in this right. is starting in the marketplace, mm -hmm. and the same techniques because you see people moving back and forth from Madison Avenue to you know these uh, to D.C. Uh, and to political campaign consulting. You know, they, they, they learn from marketing techniques and then apply those to, to political campaigns and to, to, to politicians. And, you know, it, there are many things moving, many moving parts here. And uh, it's important to also take stock of the big shifts that happen um, in the way people think of the economy. So that with Reagan, for example, you're getting a very different conception um, of the role of government in the economy uh, with, I talk about deregulation and privatization uh, and those become kind of the rules of the game that those principles also contribute to um, the kinds of expectations people have for, for their politicians and for government that, that you know, then rather than reinforcing the the fact that people are sort of in this together and that government has a role to play. The message is that you can really find um, whatever prosperity there is to be found in your own pursuit of prosperity. Um, and that, you know, you the, the game is to pay as few taxes as possible and get the most you can out of your investment uh, in American society. Just to shift gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you about um, the visual and literary material that you include in, in the book. Um, I think the the sort of wealth of imagery that you call from both uh, magazine covers and product advertisements really served to bring a lot of the archival material in the book uh, to life. And I think on the literary front, uh, my one of my favorite chapters was the, the, the this suburbanization New Jersey chapter because I'm a great fan of uh, Philip Roth, a novelist, um, his novels, of course, but also uh, you, as you discuss his, his, his earlier short stories, especially uh, Goodbye Columbus. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you about, you know, how you came across the visual and literary references that you make in the book. Did you sort of, through your research, did it make you rethink, uh, uh, you know, works of literature, poetry? I think Baraka is the other new work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, artist, writer that 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 you mentioned, um, but but yeah, I don't if you have any reflections on this. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, let's start with the photographs because um, I think I developed this deep commitment to uh, visual evidence in my first book, Making a New Deal: Industrial Workers in Chicago, 1919 to 1939, where in looking at Chicago. Uh, as it was experienced by working class people in the 1920s and 30s, I came across a lot of wonderful photographs from ethnic communities, racial communities, um, uh, social welfare agencies, uh, workplace mobilization, all kinds of things. And I had a lot of photographs in that book. And I kind of, um, I felt though that I didn't want them to just be there as illustrations. Um, I wanted them to do analytical work. So I developed an approach where I, my captions are really aimed at guiding the reader to learn what we can from what is, are in those images. Um, 
So, uh, you know, for example, I, in, in um, Making New Deal, I was talking about the shift from small neighborhood stores to uh, supermarkets, which start really taking off in the 1930s um, and push out the kind of ethnic storekeeper. So it was very important to show images of what that neighborhood store looked like, that people were not buying brand goods, packaged goods. They were buying, um, you know, out of barrels, that they weren't just self-servicing themselves, but they were really, they, the purchase was mediated by the storekeeper. All of that is available to us when we see these images in a way that they might not otherwise be because we can't go back and be there. So I had developed that approach in the first book. And as I researched A Consumer's Republic, I was very alert to uh, visual evidence um, and uh, collected photographs as I went and images and magazines and and I looked at a huge range of material in doing my research. And so I wanted to, the reader to have that same experience. So once again, I have fairly substantial uh, captions that are aimed at really reading the image in a sense and learning what we, as much as we can from it. Um, and, and I've carried that over into the most recent book, um, Saving America's Cities, where I also have a lot of photographs. And uh, so I, I think there's a lot we can learn. And I, I also feel that it helps put the reader back into the time period that I'm writing about. Um, I'm, I, I really try to make history come to life and I think it can help to have uh, visual images of it. In terms of the literary evidence, um, you know, I mean, I, I I, I once again am interested in a lot of different kinds of sources, and it was I was writing about Northern New Jersey, and uh, in a sense the decline of Newark, um, and I do have quite a lot on the riots and the uh, Newark in the '60s, and uh, placing that in this context of uh, the Consumers Republic, and so it was just inevitable that I came that I saw the ways in which I could use Philip Roth's writing and Baraka's writing. I also did a fair amount of research. I don't know if you were actually reading my footnotes, but I did a fair amount of research in the Newark Public Library, um, where there was a New Jersey room, which had much a lot of material about Newark. And there were photographs all through the room, big photographic collections. Um, Philip Roth actually was a, a, a really a patron of that library, and uh, he's kind of all over the place. So um, it was just came quite naturally to think about these multiple ways in which um, social experience was portrayed for this period I was writing about. Yeah, the captions are really really helpful. Uh, as I was as I was looking back uh, just to review for this uh, interview, I was looking through my notes, but then I just found myself drawn to rereading the entirety of the captions. Um, but moving on, uh, so, you know, part of part of what you um, sort of outline as the limits to the consumer republic operate through um, space, but also uh, through gender and race. And, you know, one one example of that was when the OPA was defeated in right after the, the war. And I think you suggest that part of the reason of that was that the consumers movement was at that point rather feminized and it was kind of seen as you know uh, consuming was kind of the the woman's job and men were cons were sort of more obsessed with producerism and unions and all that and it was only after the war and the big inflation that they realized oh you know <laughs> these two movements have to go together uh, because if we don't do consumer activism inflation will just wipe out all of our wage gains but by then it was kind of too late and they they couldn't save the OPA and then in the 50s something that happens with gender and consumption is that it it becomes more, I guess, associated with both men and women, as especially men begin to make purchases on credit of large ticket items like houses and automobiles and all of that. And I was wondering if this is like maybe a, a through line to later in the century when, I guess you mentioned earlier, like Ronald Reagan gives us a totally new imaginary about job creators and investors, which is, is very sort of masculinized and racialized as well, through this kind of consumer durables in the, the 60s and 70s. And if that's the case, then is 
you know, and this gets to your, to your latest book, um, is investment really maybe a site for politicization these days, especially investment in new forms of spatial organization? Um, so something like a, like a public investment agency, like um, mm-hmm. like Ed Loeb was in charge of that could, um, okay, for example. Like a, a redevelopment. Um, well, right. you know, it's interesting. So, so just to go back, you absolutely, you captured very well the, the gender dynamics of the Consumers Republic, that there would be moments of real active political activity and, uh, you know, in these waves of, of consumer mobilization, the progressive era in the 1930s, during World War II, when women played an important role in sort of this kind of self-regulation of the home front and agitating afterwards for the continuation of many of those protections. Um, in the 1960s, again, when there's a consumer movement that, um, for greater consumer protection and environmental protection, women again are active. Um, but uh, there, there are ways in which that, that activism becomes associated with kind of female activity. And when uh, getting back to the norm often uh, becomes a very male project. So the, the Consumers Republic itself, after the war, um, when you know, we, there is a, a push to uh, create this consumer's republic, get beyond the, the OPA-type mm-hmm. regime, those regulatory efforts are kind of dismissed as being feminized, and the, the robust mass consumer economy that is aspired to, that is very uh, production-oriented, um, in that it will create jobs for everybody, put money in people's pockets, which then they will use to consume more uh, and keep that cycle going, that that becomes a very male concept. There, there seems to be a kind of a division, a gender division of labor. Uh, the norm is male and the critique is female. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, once the period of critique is over, the male regime returns. So, you know, there is a dynamic through the the book that I think you can, and there are many other levels to this. I talk about the way in which the the tax code was written in the post-war period that favored the traditional family with a headed by a male uh, earner. Uh, The fact that women did not have access to credit until the 1970s and much of this consumer regulation that is very much promoted by second wave feminism. So those purchases that you mentioned that men were engaged in in the 1950s and 60s, uh, whether it was cars or big appliances, were often necessary because they were the ones who had the hands on the bank account. So gender is all through this story. Turning to the a very a different kind of uh, story that I'm telling in Saving America's Cities, where my subject is a male urban redeveloper named Ed Logue, who is working in this field of urban redevelopment from the 1950s really until he dies in, in 2000. It's pretty much a male world. And I, I do explore that you know, in these very powerful redevelopment agencies during the 1950s and 1960s, which get a lot of money from the federal government they do some terrible things with urban renewal, but they also do some good things uh, in building a lot of affordable housing, uh, thinking about how to plan better for metropolitan areas and so forth. It's, uh, it's a pretty much a male dominated shop. I also am particularly interested in the development of this new profession of the uh, urban administrator, the person who will be the, uh, the manager of those federal dollars and deliver them to the locality. And that is a very male field. Uh, there are always a few women who work in these redevelopment agencies, but the professions of planners and architects and people who are in this world of public administration is very much a male one. You know, over time that changes. And, and like many things, when the federal government starts to retreat and Nixon is the first person to withdraw funding from uh, many of these uh, activities that are aimed at improving access to housing and and so forth. 
and it becomes even more so under Reagan when the solutions to social problems are seen to be in the private realm rather than in the, the governmental one, women start populating these jobs because they actually have a lot less money to spend and they end up doing more social welfare than big planning and, and building. So uh, it's a, co a common story. Yeah, I guess I, I just wanted to ask because uh, in the end of Consumers Republic, you kind of suggest that it, you're, you're against nostalgia of all types, it seems like. You know, you, you, you sort of, you hammer Lash in particular, uh, who's experienced a bit of a revival on the uh, reactionary left uh, for being, you know, for wanting to go back to the 19th century and for refusing to admit that the 20th century happened and that the politics of consumption is now, you know, a part of who we are. You know, thinking through what, I guess, maybe a progressive or left politics is going forward, is, is consumption, you know, given, given the consumerization of the republic, is it a plausible site for, for politics? Or, is, or do we have to shift to other areas? I mean, is there a way of getting out of this, like, suburbanization, segmentation, segregation muck that we're in still? Oh, such a big question. I, I've been thinking a lot about about this issue because um, of the crisis we're in now with COVID and right. the economic fallout from it. And we will soon, I hope, need to have a kind of economic recovery as the United States needed to have in 1945. And I've been thinking to what extent we could look at that period of reconversion or the moment of the consumer's republic's birth for are there any lessons to be learned i've wondered from that i'm stumped to some extent because i see all the flaws that come with a consumerist solution right. for example today we would think a lot more about sustainability um, that, as I said earlier, that notion of our, the, the solution to our economic problems and the way to create a, a prosperous economy is to just get people to consume and to build planned obsolescence into that so that they have to keep consuming. But today we are fortunately a little more sensitive to the flaws in that. Um, and I think it would be very difficult to promote a strategy that was based on using things up uh, and forcing people then to buy more. So that's one way in which I think we would think differently today. The environmental concerns were not as, as important to people in the 1940s as they are today. And that's another way of using up that I don't think would make sense today. I would hope not to most Americans. Another way is that we're very aware of um, the inequity that has come with this consumerist society. And I don't think we would ever fool ourselves today as people at the time were able to, to think that we could deliver an equitable America through everybody consuming, because we know how much in inequality there is. Um, some people can get credit, many people can't. You know, the, 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 the inequality in, in earnings has grown hugely. Uh, wealth inequality we're fully aware of today. And yet consumption is 70% of GDP. So it does play a major role. So how do we recognize that, that that's not going away, that recovery from the crisis we're in now will still depend on consumption but how can we um, be attentive to so many of those pitfalls that we know exist? And you know, the foreclosure crisis in the 2008 economic disaster showed us what can go wrong when you just try to open the doors and, you know, in a sense, uh, put tremendous burdens on people that they're not equipped to be able to handle. Plus. It, I think it's important to recognize how much of a closed economic circle we lived in in the 1940s and 50s, where this whole concept of if we, we consume, we then will create jobs for Americans in American factories. Those people will take home paychecks. 
those paychecks will buy more goods, which will create jobs, which will you know, keep those, those uh, fires uh, burning. So that was a closed circle. With global capitalism, as it has taken off, uh, starting say in the 1970s at a higher level, um, it's no longer a closed circle. So consuming doesn't necessarily create a good job um, and keep a, you know, an American factory open. More likely, the profits are, you know, corporations are making them, but they're, you know, they're, they're looking to, um, you know, some uh, developing world country for cheap labor to produce it. In addition, we're not necessarily, um, with our, the way that our consumer society has developed, creating that many good jobs. Uh, we have some people who have good jobs in white collar positions and many people in service jobs in the hospitality field or working in an Amazon warehouse who are, you know, being paid minimum wage. Um, so we've, 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 we know now that, you know, those promises of the Consumers Republic are, are not going to come through for everyone. So how do we tweak it so that we acknowledge how dependent we are on consumption, but we seek a more equitable uh, kind of consumer society? And I'm open to yeah. all ideas you might have. I think it is, I, these are, you know, difficult questions that we're, that we're struggling with, but I do think it does seem like there are some lessons still from the from that era and in particular i'm thinking about the way that you know the need for consumption was used as a as a way of strengthening the labor movement or as a rhetorical weapon by the labor movement for demanding you know this is why you have to pay us more is because you know your prosperity actually depends on our ability to buy products and like i think that's a sort of rhetorical strategy that could become you know isn't that widely used yet and that's sort of puzzling to me um and then it also seems just from this conversation that you're pointing out of the way that the fret, like the the implementation of the policies where instead of having the government, the federal government just run the programs that directly um, benefit the people, how it was channeled through existing institutions or private institutions that have their own profit incentives or or prejudices or whatever. Um, it seems like that's sort of a, a warning that we should be taking heed of is that, you know, you, you know, if you if you want for things to happen, you have to make sure that you're actually taking the steps necessary. And we saw that in the CARES Act and in many of these, this legislation that was passed last spring, that you know, uh, in terms of who was going to get that uh, that money that Congress passed, they had to be qualified, and uh, you know, get it through through banks. And so, organizations that had good banking relationships and also were considered good customers were first in line. And, and so we, that still is unfortunately the way things operate. Um, on the labor front, I think that's a really interesting point. Labor has tried to make that argument, but it's a lot less convincing when so much production is not happening uh, on the home front here. So it, that I think is one of the motivations for this more global uh, labor movement where you know they where labor has been trying to reach out to uh, sites where American companies are actually operating so that they're not undercut you know with those markets and that those workers are at least being compensated and possibly the cost of production in those countries would then go up enough so that domestic production would pay off more. But you know I think that, you know, you're, you're right. Um, but the argument maybe would be even more effective today, not so much around production as it was in manufacturing, as it was in the 1940s and 50s, but around service jobs, yeah. where there are many parts of our economy today that can't be exported abroad, fortunately, or there might be few jobs for anybody. But, you know, many service jobs, you know, nursing, medical, you know, all that, you know, the, the, um, the public service, that's where the unions are strongest, the teachers. I mean, the, the argument here, um, you know, I, I think you're right, uh, hopefully could be that, you know, if you want to create a more uh, robust economy, you need, people need to have money to spend. But I don't know that the places where workers are unionized today are substantial enough. Unionization rates are very low. 
to have the impact that you know you would hope. I don't know. I would also point out another aspect of our dependence on the realm of consumption for uh, rebuilding, and that is the the, the fate and and return of our business districts and our downtowns. So many of them are basically commercial districts today and stores and restaurants and uh, you know uh, those kinds of uh, nail salons and beauty parlors and gyms and th th that's, those are all businesses that employ a lot of people and uh, they won't come, those commercial districts won't come back unless there are patrons and customers. So just in terms of our physical environment, we've got to ramp the consumer economy back up again, but taking, being aware of the inequities that are built into it, which is not going to be easy. Your, your, your answer and, and brought this perpetual issue of consumption being mediated by uh, kind of private intermediaries and, that, and I guess by finance seems like another side of the story as um, in your book, kind of moving from consumer credit to mortgage credit you sort of you you sort of see i guess i guess i'm wondering for a viable political project if it, if it would be possible to to sort of extricate consumption today from finance the idea of like indebted demand is something that we talk about on this show a lot and it seems like you know from from the period that you discuss in your book up till uh, 08 uh, the the crisis of 08 it 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 does seem like the financial nexus around housing is 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 a huge site of both struggle and, you know, potential, you know, continued sort of progress to be made in terms of just sort of having a, a building a front, I guess, against against the sort of privatized financialized form of consumption that that I think is apparent in, in the housing market more so than maybe in any other sector of, of, well, of there, the you know, credit cards, you know, the yeah. it, 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 banks are very involved in that, too. I mean, I, you know, it's my I, I guess these are very important issues. And I feel like there's both a long-term context, which is that even at the moments of the greatest sort of capacity of public administration in this country, the New Deal, say the 1960s, um, we haven't really had a lot of state capacity. There's been a tremendous dependence on private sector mediators and implementers. Uh, that, so that's one thing to, to, that we have to keep in mind that, you know, when Congress passes many policies, it's then they're implemented through private institutions. On the other hand, there has been a retreat and the, the deregulation that took place, for example, in the 1990s needs to be accounted for, you know, that, that things did get worse. <laughs> and so to the, on the, on the, you know, on the edges, things could get better. Um, but there, I'm often struck by how little ability the American state seems to have to implement. And some of that is a lot of its private sector, as I just said, but some of it goes back to an issue that you raised a while ago, which was, I think it came from you, Chris, which was the power we endow local authorities with. So that there's just been, there's a, and we've seen this in COVID. I mean, who would have expected the president to have just said it's the responsibility of the states, but he did. But even if he had not said that, I suspect there would have been tremendous dependence on lower levels of government just because the federal government does not really have tremendous capacity other than the military right. to, uh, to implement. And so, you know, I am very much in favor of government when it is doing the right thing. Many Americans though hate government and are terribly suspicious of it. You know, I, so I don't know how we would even get to a place where people would be willing to empower the government more. Yeah, that was one of the, the surprising findings of trying to beef up the unemployment insurance part of the CARES Act is that the computers on which like these records are kept are state computers and they were programmed in the like, 70s with this old code that nobody knows how to modify. So they just had to like hand out $600 checks on top of it because they're 
there's just no modifying the hardware. Um, Absolutely, and it, it's, it's kind of insane. So many ways in which we saw this. I mean, that 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 you, if you want to communicate with many government agencies, you need to send a fax. Oh. I mean, who has a fax machine <laughs> anymore? But they had. There's been so little investment the in yeah. computer systems in, right? You know, it, it's which, frightening. Which sort of, I guess, putting your last point and then Chris's together is like isn't the solution then some kind of public investment authority that can invest in this kind of capacity? And, you know, would a model for that be these um, reconstruction development corporations that you track in your, in your latest book, you know, as a kind of, you, you, you talk about um, two different kinds of democratic developmentalism. Uh, one is a kind of pluralist democracy and uh, another is maybe a participatory investor model. And both of them are, are somewhere between the kind of libertarian left of Jane Jacobs that just says, you know, don't do it. And then uh, the sort of more hierarchical capitalist planning of, I guess, a Robert Moses who would just clear neighborhoods and do whatever he wants. Is that maybe a usable history, or is that um, is that all, something else that also has kind of tragic limits that we just have to transcend and leave in the 20th century? Well, I think that the whole experience with urban redevelopment in the post-war period has left a legacy that is read differently by different groups, um, but. For many people, it would be a warning about what happens if there's too much top-down authority and, and control, uh, that communities need to have more of a say about what happens. Um, and and I, you know, I end that book with a lot of discussion of how to balance, just where we are ending up here, how to balance both the ability to plan on a larger scale and implement on a larger scale beyond the neighborhood, but also be sure that people who are gonna be affected by those policies are part of the process. And uh, it's not an easy uh, you know, route to thread. Um, I think it's, it's if, but it, you know, if there's a commitment to both making things happen and engaging uh, as many participants in the process I think it can happen, but I think we're left with a lot of suspicion on all sides and particularly, you know, on the side of neighborhoods and communities that understandably are very wary of, of government telling them about changes that should took place. And that, has, that leads to the incredible affordable cri housing crisis we have today where zoning and, uh, you know, community decisions that they don't want to have affordable housing. It's somebody else's problem, um, you know, rules the day. And so we're left with, you know, very few municipalities holding the bag, uh, often the cities and the suburbs around them putting up walls. So we have to find a balance. Um, I just feel very distressed that some of the negative experiences that we've had with government overreach, and I don't deny them, have left such a bad aftertaste with many Americans that they seem unwilling to imagine what it might be like to give, to have a government that has more capacity to do things and for um, a good that you know, will reward many different kinds of people. But that's probably pretty utopian. I, I can really see the, the kind of the roots of like NIMBYism in, in the in the post-war chapters of your book. It's it's really like a through line to yeah. you know what's happening today. But it's you know it's it, I do think we have I don't think this is you know human nature necessarily to is is one of my points to say that I'm only gonna I'm gonna judge everything that uh, governments do by whether I benefit. Um, personally, economically, I don't think that's necessarily human nature. I think that the that that you know what's acceptable gets set on multiple levels by leaders, by the culture, um, and it's not just government; it's also the private sector. And you have we have to work at an alternative if we are become aware of where this rather limited view has gotten us. So my hope is that, you know, I, I, and I, I still hold, hold out the hope that maybe the pandemic has gotten us to appreciate 
that uh, we're all in this together, that, you know, we do rise and fall to some extent together, uh, that, you know, you can't stay healthy and economically viable if others aren't with you, but we'll have to see. Yeah, and that's uh, maybe a good place to, to leave it. Um, so to, uh, waiting, well, waiting and seeing. Good. Thank right. you well, very much. Thanks for much. coming on. Yeah, that was wonderful. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson, with assistance from researchers Jackson Overpeck, Sophie Stuckenberg, and Rohan Venkat. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists, the Micro Metcalf Internship Program, as well as the University of Michigan UROP Program. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon. We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.